I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. Uh, for the next few weeks, I want to go through the book of Philippians. I want to go through verse by verse. It's uh, just four chapters, so it won't take us real long to do it. But uh, there's some very, very interesting things, uh, to me at least, concerning the city of Philippi and Paul's time in Philippi and then the letter that he wrote to the Philippians that belongs to us too. While you're finding Acts chapter 16, we have two mentions in the Bible of uh, uh, two occasions when Paul was at Philippi. The first one was in Acts chapter 15. The other is just a, a brief mention in Acts chapter 20 that, uh, that he went to the city, but the Bible doesn't tell us what happened there or any of the events that, uh, that took place. Philippi was uh, founded in 356 B.C. by Philip II, who was the king of Macedonia. Uh, Philip II was uh, Alexander the Great's father. And uh, when uh, he was assassinated, Alexander the Great inherited the, uh, the kingdom of Macedonia. He was the, uh, Philip was the, the first one to kind of gather all the Macedonian cities and geographical districts and so forth and consolidate them. And so when Alexander the Great inherited that upon his death, the death of the, uh, by assassination of his father, um, he used Philippi, uh, Macedonia as a whole, but the city of Philippi specifically, as a, a launching point, a, uh, a military headquarters for all of his eastward expansion into Asia and into Egypt. So um, uh, new world rulers come along after uh, Alexander the Great goes off the scene. His kingdom's divided into four sections. And uh, um, the um, uh, one after another kingdom takes over the group. Finally, we fast forward to get to the Romans. In about 148 uh, B.C., 200 some odd years uh, since it was founded, since the city was founded, uh, the Romans tried to uh, leave Macedonia as uh, four separate republics. And that didn't work because somebody rose up and, and uh, tried to reunite them and revolted against Rome. So in 148 B.C., uh, the Romans put down that revolt and then turned all of Macedonia into a province. In other words, they're not independently ruled any longer. They're uh, annexed into the Roman uh, Empire as a province. There are four geographical districts that used to be the four republics of Macedonia, and Luke even refers to them, Philippi being the chief city of the first district. But those were just geographical territories. Uh, they had no political power anymore and that type of thing. But in order for the Romans to, uh, to, to keep down the Macedonians, they, they saw they were going to have a problem, continuous problem in Macedonia. They uh, built a military outpost in the city of Philippi. And they built a road, a military road called the Ignatian Way, and this road became the, uh, the road for uh, the gospel to travel to many of the cities in that, uh, in that part of the world. One of the things that, um, uh, that's always interested me about uh, when the Bible talks about Jesus coming, it says when the fullness of time came or at the fullness of time Jesus was sent to the earth. One of the, the um, characteristics of the fullness of time was the expansion of the Roman Empire. Now, the Roman Empire was not friendly to the Christians. Or Christianity, they became great persecutors, and you know the story about the Christians that were killed in the the games in the Colosseum and and uh, and that type of thing. But the Romans did something that nobody else before heretofore had done that uh, that benefited the preaching of the gospel, and that is they created a worldwide network, worldwide meaning within the Roman Empire, it wasn't the whole world, but they thought they were, and they created a system of roads throughout the Roman Empire. It became the, the means 
whereby the gospel could travel from city to city. And, uh, uh, and, and there are specific roads that, take, uh, that, that Paul and others used to take the gospel into cities that established churches that still are in existence today. So, at any rate, uh, the city of Philippi was a, uh, a base for the further, furthermost expansion of Roman power. And um, uh, so having set the stage now, we'll start in Acts chapter 16. First part of the chapter tells us about Paul and, uh, going through Lystra and Derby and finding Timothy, whose mother was a Jew, but whose father was not. And uh, skip down with me to verse 6. It says, Now when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. That means eastward. After they were come to Mysia, they essayed, means attempted, to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit suffered them not. And they passing by Mysia came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. And we'll talk about the vision in just a little bit. But let me point something out to you. Paul's... Uh, ministry plan was by everybody's account led by the Holy Ghost and this is one of the great examples that show us that he attempted to go in one direction but the Holy Ghost wouldn't, wouldn't let him go there he wanted to go in another direction the Holy Ghost said no don't go there either so you have to, have to conclude that Paul is being led by the Holy Ghost in everything that he's doing but let me, let me point out something about being led by the Holy Ghost it doesn't mean you're sitting on your hands waiting for God to speak Nowhere does it say Paul sat until God told him what city to go to. See, Paul has a plan. Paul's plan is to go to the big cities. The reason you go to the big cities is because that has the most people there that you can reach for the gospel. Each one of these is talking about directions or specific places that Paul wanted to go to. In other words, that Paul uh, ascertained, determined in his own thinking, this would be a great place to go from here. And that was when the Holy Ghost said, no, don't go there. Now, why isn't Paul waiting for the Holy Ghost to say go instead of, waiting, instead of looking for the Holy Ghost to say stop? Because Jesus' commission to the church is go. Jesus' commission to the church is not wait till I tell you. And so many people, I, I know people that, that here now, what, almost 40 years after the fact, went to Bible school with them. They're still waiting for God to tell them what to do. Well, Jesus already told you what to do. He said, go. Yeah, but where do I go? Sometimes you don't know where to go until you try to go one place. Paul finds out where not to go by trying to go there. He tries to go into Bithynia. The Holy Ghost says, no, that's not right. Well, okay, that cuts down my options, but I've still got other directions I can go. So I'll go into Asia. Holy Ghost says, no, I don't want you to go there either. Now, why wouldn't the Holy Ghost just tell him, go to Philippi? See, when it comes to being led by the Holy Ghost, it comes down to being led by peace. Paul is not sitting, waiting, after he goes to the Galatia, sits at the, at the border of the region, camps out, says, all right, now we're going to wait for God to tell us where to go next. He's following the roads. He's following the roads, knowing that nobody's been to this place, nobody's been into Asia yet, so we'll go there. Holy Ghost says, no, don't go there. Now, he winds up going to Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, which is part of Asia, and spends the longest period of time of any city that he was in in his ministry, three and a half years. So God is not saying, I don't want Asia to hear the word. He's saying, now's not the time. Now, how does Paul know? 
Same way you and I know by the inward witness. There's just something about it where the Holy Ghost seems to be saying no on the inside. So he searches for another direction. Finds a direction toward Bithynia and the Holy Ghost says no, don't go there either. Well, what was that? Same inward witness. Same red light on the inside. So what does he do? Well, now he's waiting to find out which direction to go next, but he has to sleep in the meantime, so he goes to bed. He's not staying up. He's not fretting about it. He's not spending all night long sweating it out. He goes to bed, and then a vision appears to Paul in the night. Verse 9. And there stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over unto Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called for us to preach the gospel unto them. Now, let me point something out to you. I don't want to spend a long time on it, but it's important for you to... uh, I I think it helps get a a better picture, an overall picture of what's going on here. Please notice how that... um, Well, look with me to verse 6 and compare verse 6 to verse 10. Now, when they, they meaning Paul and his company, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. Verse 10. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we. Now, who is we? Well, Luke's the writer of the book of Acts. He's now part of the company. One of the things about Philippi is that, that connect, in connection with the city, the chief city of Macedonia, which was the city of Philippi, we see Luke becoming part of the company. Now, let me skip ahead a little bit. Chapter 17, verse 1, it says, Now, when they... This is after everything takes place in Philippi and they have to leave the city. We'll read down through there in a minute, but I want you to see the, the change. Now, when they had passed through Am- Am- someplace, in some other place, they came to Thessalonica and there was a synagogue of the Jews. Notice it's back to they. Luke drops out of the company. He doesn't leave Philippi with them. He misses the, the ministry in Thessalonica in chapter 17. He misses the ministry in Corinth. In Acts chapter 18, he misses the ministry in Ephesus, the three and a half years in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. In Acts chapter 20, it says that, well, we'll start reading in verse 4. I don't want to take much time on it. Verse 4, it says, and there accompanied him into Asia, talking about Paul. There accompanied Paul into Asia, Sopater of Berea. So it's okay to go into Asia now. He's already there. He's been there for three and a half years in Ephesus. So he's going into the other parts of Asia. Sopater of Berea, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy. And we don't know if Timothy was from Lystra or Derby from this, but Acts chapter 16, verse 1 tells us that that's where Paul found him in, when he went to Lystra and Derby, sister cities almost side by side. And of Asia, Tychicus and Trophimus. These going before tarried for us at Troas. Luke's part of the company again. And we sailed away from Philippi. Here's the second time that the Bible mentions that Paul was in Philippi, but it doesn't tell us anything about what happened there. It doesn't tell us how long he was there. It just mentions that he went there and it was a sailing off, uh, jumping off point to sail to another place. And we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came unto them to Troas in five days where we abode there seven days. I want you to notice that Luke was in and out. At this point in time, Luke was in and out of Paul's company. But he does take place in the, in the things that took place. He is part of what took place in the city of Philippi. Back to chapter 16. 
Again, verse 9, And a vision appeared unto Paul in the night, and there stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, Paul's the only one who had the vision. He related to the others, apparently. Immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. Therefore, loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course to Samothracia, and the next day to Neapolis. Now, if you're Paul and part of the company, and you've just left one place, left the region of Galatia, and you're looking down the roads, and you're seeing which direction the roads go, and you say, well, okay, let's take the road to Asia, and the Holy Ghost says, no, don't take that one. And you say, okay, well, let's take the road to Bithynia then. And the Holy Ghost says, no, don't take that one either. So then you say, well, okay, I'm not sure which road he wants us to take. Has a vision in the night where a man from Macedonia appears to him in the vision and says, come over here and help us. You can well understand how they would associate that with the leading of the Holy Ghost. Not only that, but you would well understand that they would expect that if God has led them in this spectacular way through a vision and not through a leading, no, don't go to Asia, go to Philippi instead. No, don't go to Bithynia, go into Macedonia and the chief cities there. You would also expect that something ex- uh, uh, unusual, at the very least, is going to happen. And it did. Therefore, loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course to Samothracia, and the next day to Neapolis, and from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia. That's one of the, the geographical districts, one of the four districts and a colony, and we were in that city abiding certain days. And on the Sabbath we went out of the city by a riverside where prayer was wont to be made. And we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened that she attended unto the things which were spoken to Paul. And when she was baptized and her household, she besought us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And there she constrained us. Now, let me, let me break this down a little bit from a, a, a historical context. When Paul goes to a city, his, his custom is to find a synagogue. Well, there was no synagogue in Philippi. We know because he didn't go to the synagogue. Anytime there was a synagogue in the city, Paul would go there first. Now, custom of the day of that time tells us that the Jews would establish a synagogue any place in any city or town that had 10 Jewish males. So there is not a Jewish colony here. Or if there is, it's very small because there is no synagogue present. But when the Jews, and usually there were a, a few Jews, if not enough for a synagogue, the Jews that were in that town would have informal meeting places places where they would pray that's what's by the riverside here that paul goes to he goes into the city of philippi and he, he looks around and asks somebody perhaps and says where's the synagogue in town and, they, and the answer is well there isn't a synagogue here in the city oh, okay well where do the the jews gather then because they're always going to be if there are jews in a town in a location in a geographical place they're going to have some gathering place where they can keep the prayers and the laws of the sabbath or whatever it might be that they're keeping That's what he's looking for. And the closest thing he can find to it is the informal meeting place where the women are washing clothes. Now, it's interesting also when you understand the historical setting of Philippi, this part of Macedonia, that it talks about that Lydia 
And other women were the ones that first attended to the gospel that Paul preached. They're the ones that got saved. They're the ones that became the core and the nucleus of the church at Philippi. The reason for that is, and, and also that it mentions that she was a seller of purple. There are other historical documents. For example, histor- uh, uh, Homer has some classical writings that identify that Philippi in this part of Macedonia, this dis- district, this geographical district of Macedonia, was famous for a certain root. It's called a matter root. And when this root is crushed, it's ground up and, and mixed with water, and it makes a purple dye. Homer mentions that the, the women of Macedonia would dye ivory purple. And he also makes mention of the influence of the, of the women there. Apparently, the purple industry was dominated by women. And so Lydia, one of these sellers of purple, one of these workers in this purple dye, is influential not only where her household is concerned, but where the church that winds up being in her city is concerned. So it says it came to pass as we went to prayer. Well, where are they going to prayer? Back to the riverside. There's no temple. There's no synagogue. They're going back to this same place where they're washing clothes and people are gathering to do the work and so forth. It says, And it came to pass as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination. One translation says soothsaying, another translation says fortune-telling. Possessed with a spirit of divination met us, which brought our masters much gain by soothsaying or fortune-telling. The same followed Paul and us and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this did she many days, but Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. Now, there's something else you need to know about this, folks. Um, you remember when we talked about uh, the, the plagues of Egypt, the ten plagues of Egypt? We found out that there were nine plagues and, and one, the last one, was, which was the death of the firstborn. Do you remember that each one of those plagues was a specific attack? by God against one of their deities, one of the Egyptian deities. you remember that? Well, that's what's going on here. Because this little girl had what was known as, uh, well, I don't even, I don't want to try to pronounce it because I'll mess it up. She had the same type of spirit that the Pythian priestess had in the city of Delphi. Now, you've got to remember these are pagan and idol-worshipping people. And there were cities that were dedicated to certain ones. For example, you remember Ephesus was dedicated to Diana. Great is that Diana of the Ephesians that cried out for several hours when there was an uproar in the riot in the city over Paul and his preaching. Well, these cities would be dominated by and dedicated to certain, uh, certain gods and, and so forth. Well, the city of Delphi was famous for the Pythian priestess who would, give, who would tell fortunes, do just the same as this, this girl, only with greater fanfare and greater fame attached to it. And she was supposed to be the mouthpiece for Apollo. Well, because this little girl had the same type of spirit and the same operation on her, this was something that was well known throughout the area. This was not just a, a little kiosk on the side of the road here where, you know, uh, you see one of these five-fingered hand pictures saying, come in and I'll tell you your fortune type stuff like you see on the side of the road. Those things were all over the South. I don't, have you ever seen those things? They'll have all kinds of things that will, will foretell your future, you know, show you fame and fortune. And they're always shacks. 
you think that if they knew anything about fortune, they'd be living better than they're doing, you know? But anyway, that's not the kind of thing that this was. This was something that was well-known. It was something that was uh, uh, widely uh, publicized in that part of the, the, uh, the world, that part of Macedonia at least. And so when Paul is grieved by the Holy Ghost, grieved in his spirit and turns and casts the devil out of that little girl, says, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. This is an attack, just like the plagues of Egypt. This is an attack on one of the heathen gods, one of the idols that they worshipped, literally one of the Greek mythology gods, the mouthpiece of Apollo type stuff, that God is saying, I'm greater than that. So it says the evil spirit came out the same hour, verse 19. And when her masters saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace unto the rulers and brought them to the magistrates, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into the prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely who having received such a charge thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. Now there's some things that that are side issues here in this story, but if you understand the language, if you understand what's being said, it adds to the detail that confirms how accurate the Bible is. For example, there are are two words that are used here. One is magistrates and the other is lictor. Lictor doesn't translate into the King James, but it's there in the original language. It just refers to they. The, the magistrates, the, the, uh, when uh, an, uh, a colony is annexed into the Roman Empire, there has to be some kind of Roman rulership that's set up. And the Roman rulership is typically a magistrate for an, an annexed colony. And the magistrate becomes the governor of that, that region or that territory, that district, whatever it turns out to be. The lictor is something very specific. The lictor is the executioner or the enforcer for the magistrate. The badge for the lictors, and this was all throughout the Roman Empire, the badge for the lictors is a bundle of rods. It was an emblem. It was an insignia that they had. And that was their sign of authority. So when the magistrates commanded that Paul and Silas be beaten, this is exactly the work of the, mag- of the, uh, the lictors. They use these rods to beat anyone into submission to the Roman authority. So that's what happens. They beat them and throw them in jail. And at midnight, verse 25, at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved and thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his, straightway. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all of his house. Now, verse 35, it says, And when it was day, the magistrates sent the sergeants. This word sergeants is the word lictor. 
It's the Roman government. Now, let me, let me back up before we go back to them and, and talk about the end of the story. Let me back up to Paul and Silas being released. We all know the story. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises and the prisoners heard them. Suddenly, there was an earthquake. We know the results. You need to understand something. First of all, don't think that Paul and Silas are in a bubble when it comes to praying and singing praises in jail. Because the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, the Bible of Jesus' day, the Septuagint tells about when the three Hebrew children were thrown into the fiery furnace when Nebuchadnezzar commanded them to be thrown into the fiery furnace. The Septuagint specifically says that Nebuchadnezzar and the others around saw four of them one of them looking like the Son of God, and heard them singing praises to God in the middle of the furnace. Origen, who was one of the early church fathers, tells of the, the uh, tales of the patriarchs. Apparently there were some writings of the tales of the patriarchs, 12 different volumes or documents. We don't really know what they are too much. But he refers to them. One of them is about Joseph. You remember the story of Joseph, how they did when he was uh, sold by his brothers into slavery? The Bible tells us that he was mistreated and thrown into prison and all this kind of stuff. One of these documents documenting or or relating his story, Joseph's story as a patriarch, says that when he was in prison, after having been beaten, the other prisoners and the jailer heard him singing praises unto God. And it was instrumental in him becoming the ruler of the prison first and then secondly being delivered and released. So when Paul and Silas come to the place where they're beaten and thrown in jail... They already know their history. They know what to do when you're beaten and thrown in jail. This is not something they just came up with on their own and said, well, okay, what do we do now? My back hurts. What about yours? They knew what to do. If they knew what to do, shouldn't we know what to do too? Folks, you need to realize this is the pattern. This is not just an isolated incident. This is not something for us to look at and say, wow, wasn't that great what what God did for Paul and Silas? This is what God does for anybody that prays and sings praises in prison. Now, the second part of this is, you know how that there was an earthquake as a result of their prayers and their praises. There was an earthquake, and it says that everybody's stocks fell off their hands and their feet. The chains fell off their hands. The stocks opened up from their feet, and everybody's prison door opened. This is part of Greek mythology. There's a story in Greek mythology about how Dionysus was held in prison by one of the other gods. Now, I don't know too much about Greek mythology, so don't, if I've got somebody's name wrong, forgive me. But the story is this. Dionysus was held prisoner by one of the other gods, and there was an unseen hand that released the chains on his feet and opened the prison doors. So when God does this, he's not just saying, okay, well, I'm going to help Paul and Silas out because after all, I gave him a vision, told him to come here. There's more to it than this. This is an attack on their Greek uh, mythology. This is an attack against their gods. Here's God saying, you've got a fable and a legend that can't be proven. I'm the real deal. He's got an eyewitness to the effect. And that's the jailer. So the next morning, it says, verse 35, and when it was day, the magistrates, here's the governors, sending the sergeants, the lictors, the one that beat them, saying, let those men go. And the keeper of the prison told this saying to Paul, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. But Paul said unto them, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned, being Romans, and now and have cast us into prison. And now do they thrust us out privately? No, 
That's not the way this is going to go. Nay, verily. You know what nay, verily means, don't you? It means, uh-uh. Nay, verily, but let them come themselves and fetch us out. And when the sergeants, the lictors, told these words unto the magistrates, and they feared, and they feared when they heard that they were Romans. Now, let me explain to you what's going on here. Apparently, one of two things has taken place from the day before. The day before, there was an uproar and uh, a riot was taking place and, and Paul and Silas were, uh, were accused as Jews by teaching, of teaching things that were against the custom of the, of the Roman citizens. You need to understand something, folks. The greatest problem that the Roman Empire had with Christianity is that they wouldn't worship Caesar. Because all throughout the Roman Empire, one right after the other, once one did it, the rest of them kind of caught on to the idea. They would proclaim themselves as gods. Now, that, that was always part of the Roman, uh, the Caesar position. But it was only about midway through the big Caesars that they were considered to be gods while they were alive. For example, Julius Caesar was, was uh, determined to be a god. Everybody said he was a god, but they didn't say it until after he was already dead. But one of these guys started the practice of saying, well, if I'm going to be a god when I'm dead, I'm a god now. And as such, they required of all the Roman citizens throughout the world, throughout the Roman Empire, to worship or to pay homage in some way or shape or form to Caesar as a God. Well, the Christians wouldn't do this. And so they were accused of subverting the Roman society. They were accused of uh, anything and everything, really. But it really came down to idol worship. It came down to the Christians having to make a determination, having to make a decision. Am I going to worship Jesus only as God and Lord of my life? Or is he going to be just one of the many things? You remember in Ephesus? The Bible tells us that Paul had been there for over three years. God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, Acts chapter 19, verse 11, so that from his body were taken under the sick handkerchiefs or aprons. And when they touched the diseases, the people, the, evil, the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. You remember? Well, it tells us about people that tried to cast the devil out, saying, I adjure you in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. And that didn't work. And the devil conquered them. And that was known among the city. And everybody heard about it. And what they do? They brought their idols. And made the decision finally. To quit worshiping Jesus and everything else. And they burned everything in the field. That shows you the state of the church. The early days of the church. Christians were faced daily. Daily. I mean you couldn't walk. If the ruins of Ephesus are or anything uh, to be representative of the other cities, you couldn't work, walk down the street to do business without passing six or eight different temples. If you walked the, the whole street, you'd pass over a 100. And each one of these was supposed to be dedicated to some god that would either control the wind or the rain or the, the sun or, or something. And if you didn't pay some kind of homage to the sun god and the sun didn't shine, everybody got mad at you. If you didn't do something, give some kind of offering to the, the God that's supposed to control the rain and the crops growing and stuff like that, and the crops weren't good and it didn't rain, then everybody's mad at you. They think you're the problem. 
And so it became this citywide thing in almost all of these chief cities that everybody gave pennies or whatever it was that they could get by with just to get along with everybody to be able to do business. But the Christians wouldn't do it. Their lives were in constant jeopardy. So when they draw, draw Paul and Silas into the city square, so to speak, and bring them before the magistrates and say, these men being Jews teach customs that are not lawful for Roman citizens to keep. That's what they're talking about. They're saying, not only did they take away our source of income, did they infringe upon our property rights, but they're teaching things about this guy named Jesus that turns them against Roman society. And apparently, that's the reason, at least it could be the reason, why the magistrates didn't investigate what is the charge against these guys. They see the crowd. They see the problem. They say, well, we know how to fix the problem. Let's have these guys beaten. But they didn't stop to investigate and find out who are these guys. They didn't stop and find out were they Roman citizens. And then when they do find out they're Roman citizens, when Paul says, and Paul knows the, the, uh, the rights that he has as a Roman citizen. He knows everything about Jewish history. He knows everything about the Jewish custom. He knows everything about the Roman history and the Roman rights. When Paul realizes and, and brings to their attention, we're Romans, he knows he's got them over a barrel. Because if it's found out and if it gets back to Rome that the magistrates are ruling in such a way that they're beating Roman citizens unlawfully, which it was, which this case would fit, then they could lose their governorship. If the governor blames it on the lictor, the executioner guy, the, the enforcer guy, then he could lose his place. And so when Paul says, if they beat us openly, we're not going to let them cast us away privately. Then the magistrates show up. Then they came and besought him. Verse 39. They came and besought him and brought him out and desired them to depart from the city. Now here's something else that might be interesting for you to know. And that is, the Roman government did not have the authority to tell or command a Roman, city to leave the, a Roman citizen to leave the city. A Roman citizen had the freedom to go anywhere within the Roman Empire that he wanted to go. They could not make them leave legally, lawfully. But what they're doing is they're saying public opinion is so against you because of what happened yesterday. We can't guarantee to provide for your safety. Now, if Paul and Silas had stayed in town and something had happened to them, the magistrate's head would be on a block because they did not do their job to protect and provide for the citizenry. So when Paul comes out, and here's what the, here's what the whole thing is about, you might, wanna, you might consider, well, what does Paul make such a big deal about Roman citizens for, being a Roman citizen for, if he leaves town on his own anyway? What's the point of even making an issue of it? If he's not going to push it, if he's not going to press the issue and get the magistrate in trouble, what's he saying it for? Here's why he's saying it. Here's why he's bringing it out. And that is by claiming and proving himself in silence to be Roman citizens. He has disconnected in the magistrate's mind and therefore in the influence of the, for the influence of the city. He's disconnected the church with criminal behavior because Paul knows that's what's happening everywhere he goes. He knows that that's what the Roman citizenry is, is up in arms about. He's not only got the Jews and the problem with the Jews on his hand, but the Romans to the degree they're against the church, claiming the church, the Christians, are lawbreakers. Paul knows if a church is going to survive, it's going to have to have a chance to get planted and established and grow. 
So he's disassociating the church with criminal behavior and criminal activity. So they came and besought him and brought them out and desired them to depart from the city. And they went out of the prison and entered into the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they comforted them and they departed. Now turn with me over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We just read a little bit ago in chapter 17 verse 1 that they left and came to Thessalonica. Notice what Paul says to the Thessalonians in writing back to them about his time in Philippi. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. He says, For you you yourselves, brothers, know our entrance in unto you that it was not in vain. In other words, the entrance means the first time we came to you. You know what it was like the first time we came to you. But even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. Now, folks, you need to realize something. And the... Uh, we'll talk more about this next time. It's time for us to close. But the the um, uh, there's a couple of things that we know about the letter written to the Philippians. One is it was written when Paul was in prison. Now, which prison experience Paul was in, we don't exactly know. It could be one of two. Actually, it could be one of three possibilities. It's either in the prison time that he spent, the two years he spent in uh, uh, Felix, being held by Felix in Caesarea. That was from 57 to 59 AD. Or it could be the two years that he spent in Rome from 60 to 62. There uh, is good evidence that Paul had a third imprisonment in 64, maybe 65, just before he was executed. But we don't, uh, most of the evidence is it wouldn't have been in that third imprisonment. So the question is, where did he write it from? Most of the, the best evidence, in my opinion, the best evidence comes well, when he was in uh, uh, prison in Rome. So it would have been in 60 to 62 A.D. So when Paul talks about these things, when Paul identifies that these things happened, Paul is making a lifestyle case of evidence for when the Romans are going to bring charges against him. He goes after Acts chapter 15 to uh, uh, Corinth, Athens, Ephesus, here in, um, uh, it goes back to Philippi, excuse me, it goes back to Philippi, and then winds up going back to Jerusalem, and then is uh, taken captive and sent to Jerusalem. Paul has these uh, opportunities to speak to different kings, different rulers, different uh, people in authority, and in each case, there are different charges that are brought before him. The Jews wanted to charge him with teaching customs that were contrary to Jewish law. That's easy to, to dispel. They said he brought uh, Gentiles and and unclean people into the temple and stuff. He could easily disprove that. But when it came to the Romans, he had to build more more and more of a case. So Paul is building a lifetime of experience to build his case for being set free. And apparently it worked in the imprisonment from 60 to 62 AD. That's where the book of Acts ends. It says that he was two years in a hired house. He was guarded by the Praetorian Guard. The, the words that he uses uh, indicate that it was the, the emperor's personal bodyguards that held him and kept him, really keeping him safe, not trying to keep him from uh, doing what he wants to do, but keeping him safe from others that, that want to kill him and are plotting to kill him. But Paul is using examples just like this 
that we see in Acts chapter 16 in Philippi to build a case for why Christianity is not contrary to the Roman government. The problem is, once you get to 64 AD and you run into Nero, it doesn't matter. Because Nero doesn't care what the truth is. Nero starts the persecution. He's the one that steps up to the killing of the Jews, impaling them on posts and lighting them for street lamps, sending them to the beasts of the, of the Colosseum and then killing them in the games and so forth. Once he gets to Nero, it doesn't matter because this guy's just crazy. But notice how Paul uses wisdom time and time and time again, exercising his rights as a Roman citizen, showing how that the work of the government against him is unjust and comes out on top every time. Now, I say comes out on top doesn't mean he's always set free from prison. Doesn't mean he never has trouble. But Paul was the apostle of the heart set free. He's more free in prison than most people are walking around because he knows who he is in Christ. We'll start next time with the book of uh, uh, Philippians with the letter that he wrote to the Philippians and we'll go through to what he said. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege that we have to walk in the same truth, the same knowledge that Paul did. We thank you, Father, that we're just as saved as Paul was. We're just as much the righteousness of God as he was. Father, we thank you that even though Paul was public sinner number one, you made a spectacle of him and showed him just how much you love mankind. We thank you, Father, that your love for us extends that far and even further. Thank you, Father, that you're with us in every situation. You know the days that we live in, Father, how that the government is turning more and more against the church, how that it becomes more and more the fulfillment of the scripture, that these are perilous times. But, Father, I pray that you would give us strength and courage and conviction to stand up for what's true, that Jesus would be magnified as the Lord of our lives, even if it comes to the point where we have to stand before rulers and declare it so. We thank you, Father, for the power of the Holy Ghost that delivers us and keeps us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.